daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China has called for restraint over Palestine and Israel tensions. The Prime Minister of Thailand has kicked off a three-day trip to Hong Kong. And China has issued a document to encourage participation of more private enterprises in the telecommunication sector. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road today. China's permanent representative to the United Nations, Zhang Jun, has called on relevant parties to exercise restraint over the recent escalation of tensions and violence between Palestine and Israel at the UN Security Council met to discuss the conflict on Sunday. Zhang said the Chinese said is gravely concerned about the outbreak of a fierce conflict and is deeply worried about the prospect of a further deterioration of the situation. He called for efforts to advanced a two-state solution with the greatest sense of urgency. Over 1,100 people have been killed in the escalation of tensions. Israel has formally declared war on Hamas, setting the stage for a major military operation in Gaza following a surprise attack by the Hamas over the weekend. Nora Harizan has more from Gaza. A night of heavy Israeli shelling and airstrikes turn Gaza into a ghost city. As the air fills with dust and smoke, roads are full of ash, broken glass, bricks and other debris. People are trapped in their homes in fear. Only those who have fled have the courage to return. Rashad al-Bawab, 45 years old, had to leave his home with his family, running from the heavy airstrikes on the Al-Watan residential building in central Gaza City. Al-Bawab returned to check and found his home and barber shop partly damaged. The Israeli army called us and told us that only precise bombing would be carried out in the area. They asked us to stay in our homes, but we fled. You can see the extreme destruction to our homes, which contain more than 65 people. If we stayed, we'd be dead. Since the beginning of the operation, Palestinians have taken precautions by stockpiling bread and food. Some families living close to the border have left their homes to take shelter in schools or relatives' homes. The Israeli raids have targeted buildings in central Gaza City. Al-Akluk Tower is an 11-story building on Al-Nasr Street in central Gaza. It's been brought to the ground by Israeli airstrikes. Abu Muhammad Nasser, who lived in the building, says it contained 80 residential apartments. All the families are now homeless. Our area is a safe residential area with many children, and there's no military site or governmental site. Before the bombing, we ran from our homes at 6 in the morning, and the women and children became hysterical after they woke up terrified. While some Gazan families try to gather what's left of their destroyed homes, others await an uncertain future as they expect a huge Israeli invasion into Gaza in the upcoming days. That was Noor Harazin reporting. To delve into this and more, joining us on the line are Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China, and Dr. Tim Anderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hedmonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Dr. Wang, the UN Security Council on Sunday held emergency consultations behind uh, closed doors following the recent escalation of tensions and violence between Palestine and Israel. Before we delve into any possible solutions from their discussion, please help our uh, audiences who are not familiar with the broader historical background. How do you understand the evolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over the years? Uh, sure, Anna. This is a very new wave of round of the conflict between Israelis and the Palestinians. And uh, it has many new features that uh, first emerged, even the very, very t- unique and the very, very particular, even if we compare to what happened during the past decade long uh, of uh, the, the, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, first of all, this is a very uh, sudden 
uh, a sudden outbreak of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians, especially um, the Israeli Hamas and the Jihad in uh, Gaza Strip. They launched uh, such large number of uh, missiles as well as rockets inside Israeli territory within a very short term, and also some of uh, the, the, the militias from Hamas and Jihad from the Gaza Strip. They entered and penetrated into the Israeli southern territory and, cent- and the central territories to launch attacks. So that is very, very uh, unique compared to the other, uh, to the past uh, rounds of the conflict. And meanwhile, uh, as the Israeli, they started to launch uh, offensive, especially uh, the, the counter attacks against the targets in Gaza Strip, as well as against the, uh, the, the, the possible Hamas and the Jihad militias. Uh, it will lead to much more uh, casualties, especially the civilian casualties of Palestinian sides in the future. So this is the first, the new round of the conflict, and also it is a diff, uh, it's very unique with its large number of the civilians casualties and the large wave of destructions uh, by war. Uh, and uh, this is, a, of course, the result of the long-term uh, stalemate and deadlock between Israeli and Palestinian uh, peace talks. And also, it is a, a result of the long-term ignored and forgotten uh, international efforts, especially from the Western countries, towards the mediation uh, process between Israelis and Palestinian peace. And so that remind again of the words that the Palestinian issue cannot be forgotten, cannot be mm. ignored, and the peace, ter- internal peace between Israel and Palestinian mechanism should be reconstructed uh, again as soon as possible to help the local people there. And mm. Dr. Anderson, what do you think is the core of Israeli-Palestinian conflict from your perspective? Look, the problem is that there have been discussions around the ideas of a two-state solution, which have really been a cruel myth. Uh, and indeed, the PLO recognized the Israeli state in the 90s under something called the Oslo Accords. And under those agreements, there was a recognition and the idea of a transition towards two states. But what has happened since that time to the frustration of the Palestinian people is the theft of their land, the increased colonization of the West Bank, of East Jerusalem. That has proceeded much more rapidly in the recent era than it had before. So there's great frustration with the the Palestinian Authority, which was set up as a result of those talks, and the idea of some sort of peace agreement with Israel, which has never showed any real uh, intention to move towards two states, and the current government has really is, is the most hostile to any idea of recognizing a Palestinian state. So I think you'll find, um, despite all of what's being said internationally, that the Palestinian population is enormously happy that the fact that resistance groups in um, the Gaza Strip, in particular Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad, are actually standing up to the Israelis and fighting back because they've just been sitting there being brutalized and progressively losing their land. There's no possibility of a two-state solution with what the the current regime under Netanyahu has done in recent times. Dr. Anderson, earlier Dr. Wong mentioned this recent escalation had a strong element of suddenness. In past Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, there has yearly been a spiral escalation process where one or two incidents provoke public outrage and then lead to a large-scale mm. conflict. But this time, there was no such process and the conflict started directly. How do you perceive the sudden onset of this conflict in comparison to previous conflicts between the two? Yes, it is quite different in the sense that it's obviously very well planned, very well organized. The Palestinian resistance groups have captured quite a number of commanders. They have well over 100 prisoners of war, perhaps a couple of hundred prisoners of war in Gaza. Um, And of course, that has, you would think that would have some effect on the Israeli bombing of the civilians in Gaza, but it doesn't so far seem to have shown up very much. But certainly the capacity and the organization of the the militant Palestinian groups is far superior to anything before. In the past, you would see, you know, perhaps a handful of Israelis killed and hundreds of Palestinians killed. Now that equation has turned around substantially. And it shocked the Israelis, of course, probably it shocked the world because really there was this myth that the Israeli military, the Israeli intelligence was such a well-developed capacity that they were invulnerable, they couldn't be beaten. And now there's, there's, I mean, of course, we have to recognize also that the Israeli regime itself 
is weakened internally because there have been big divisions in Israel. Uh, many of the liberals are unhappy with the Netanyahu-led government, for example. They have their own complaints about him dismantling the judiciary. So really the tables have turned in many respects in this particular conflict, which is ongoing, by the way. It hasn't stopped. It's been going on for three days. We, we can't see exactly um, what the, the terms of any resolution are going to be, but it is quite new, it is quite different, and shows a, a level of organisation and capacity on the part of the Palestinians that has not been seen before. Dr. Wan, the Israeli side has responded strongly. Prime Minister Netanyahu declared a state of war and the Israeli military launched airstrikes in the Gaza Strip and initiated ground operations. How do you interpret Israel's response here? Israel needs to and has, uh, has to respond very strongly, very assertively uh, to, the, to the current state. Uh, current state. And uh, the, the word of state is very, very uh, a realization of this uh, attitude. Uh, we have to know that Israel, on the one hand, is suffered so much that the, the, the extent that it suffered uh, during the past uh, days, especially at the very beginning uh, of the, the, the beginning hours of the, uh, of the latest conflict, uh, was so high that it might be the highest, uh, even uh, after the 1978, when the modern Israeli state was established. So it's a very sudden shock not only to the Israeli security established, but also to Israeli, the whole society. So that is why Israeli government and the Israeli military forces, they have to strongly uh, respond to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the, the attack from Hamas and the Jihad from the Gaza Strip. And meanwhile, we, uh, we have to know that it is a very um, uh, realistic, uh, necessary uh, measure that should be taken by the Israeli government and the Israeli military forces because uh, some of the, uh, the southern towns and southern uh, uh, villages have are still uh, captured and occupied by the Hamas and the, mil- and the Jihad militias. And many of the Israeli civilians are taken as hostages uh, by the militias. So Israeli forces they have to take uh, uh, very harsh measures against this, uh, this militias in the southern Israel as well as in the Gaza Strip. So that is why I think the state of war, uh, as well as a much stronger uh, response, are needed by Israeli society. In the perspective, the Israeli government and the, Israeli, uh, uh, the military forces. Yeah, Dr. Anderson, do you share the same stance? How do you interpret Israel's response, considering that Prime Minister Netanyahu has declared a state of war and the Israeli military has initiated airstrikes in the Gaza Strip and launched ground operations? Well, they've had many operations against the, the Gaza Strip in the past, and that's really not new, except that really, if you read what is being said by the Israeli authorities now, mm-hmm. they are talking about no restraints, and they are attacking a very densely populated city which has been under siege. Netanyahu told them to leave, but they can't leave. They're under a siege. They're under a blockade, and they're cutting the water, the electricity, the food to it. Um, it's really a very desperate situation. I think it's more... It's better likened to the reprisals that were taken by fascist regimes in the past uh, as a result of their frustration of not being able to deal with the armed conflict. The armed conflict is ongoing um, in those uh, colonies around the Gaza Strip in the in the southern part of what's called Israel and in the east of the Gaza Strip there in, in part of the West Bank. But um, really, there, these reprisals in, in Gaza, which have already killed several hundred people, are against densely populated civilian areas. The Israeli regime is saying it's they're doing it against the armed groups, but there's no such thing. It's a very dense city that they're bombing. And so they are, they are trying to make up with that bombing out of their failure to deal with the military situation on the ground. It's a tremendous failure on the part of the military, and it's not over yet. We don't know where it's going. There are signs of support coming from Lebanon, from the resistance groups Hezbollah in Lebanon, for example, where the Israelis still occupy some Lebanese territory. There's the question of Syria, where the Israelis occupy the Jolan Heights, which is by international law still a part of Syria. So there's the possible, the Israelis aren't out of the woods yet in terms of the armed conflict. I don't think we should say or back up the idea that they're entitled to go in and bomb civilian populations in Gaza because they're frustrated that a conflict has emerged and for once they are not prevailing in this conflict.
Dr. Anderson, speaking of the other factors involved in the conflict, most of the world is aware of the complexity of these events in the Middle East, as are attitudes towards the conflict. Western countries led by the United States have condemned Hamas for launching terrorist attacks on Israel, and Arab countries have called for a ceasefire between the two sides. How do you set the impact of regional and global geopolitical factors on the recent conflict, and how might these factors influence the prospects for peace in the region? Well, there, there's a type of um, a duality going on with the way people have talked about Israel. On the one hand, in, the, in recent years, we've had at least six independent reports branding it an apartheid regime which has to be dismantled. It doesn't has never recognized proper citizen rights for the bulk of the Palestinian people that live there. So there's a, a great delegitimizing of the Israeli state. On the other hand, the Western powers in particular and a number of the Arab regimes that have normalized with Israel are really, on the one hand, they say, oh, Israel's gone too far in doing this and um, they are setting up illegal colonies on the West Bank, which now have 600, 700,000 people there, but they don't do anything about it. They keep providing money and arms to the Israelis and the Israelis, particularly this regime led by Netanyahu, keeps stealing land, keeps uh, promoting the idea that Palestine and the Palestinians don't exist and they can be swept off um, in, a, in, a, in a type of ethnic cleansing. That's not happening. The people haven't been going away and now they're fighting back. So I think much of the world has to rethink what they previously saw as a conflict between two groups or two distinct states. There is really a single state there now, but it's an apartheid regime for the most part. And it really reminds me of South Africa in the 80s more than anything else. So I think we have to start thinking in terms of um, what happened with apartheid South Africa in the 80s rather than this old idea of two states, which most most people on both sides are now saying it doesn't. the possibility of two states doesn't exist anymore. There's far too much penetration into what used to be called the Palestinian territories. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wang, how would you evaluate the influence of regional and global geopolitical factors on the uh, recent conflict? I think the recent conflict will, first of all, uh, will uh, further... Uh, to some extent, obstruct the peace process, especially the normalization efforts between Saudi Arabia and Israel, even temporarily, because uh, it is it might bring Saudi Arabia back to uh, to the reality from the negotiation table with Israel, uh, because Saudi Arabia perceive perceive itself as the leader of Arab as well as the Islamic world. So Saudi Arabia has to make choice right now between normalization ties with Israel as well as uh, the, the to keep distance uh, with Israel. I think they will uh, prefer the latter. And meanwhile, uh, uh, I think it will uh, strongly influence negatively the, 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 the strategy of so-called uh, the India, uh, Middle East, and uh, uh, Europe economic model uh, mm-hmm. plan that's uh, implemented and strongly encouraged by the United States because the key of this economic corridor uh, plan uh, Ease the normalization efforts between Israel and Palestine and uh, and Saudi Arabia. So, without the normalization efforts successfully made by Saudi Arabia and Israel, I think this economic corridor might not be successfully implemented in the future. And finally, I think it will uh, give uh, remind the world the the, the traditional uh, division uh, between uh, the West and the Arab states. And also the, the the West and the, the Islamic world, because the Israel and Palestinian crisis are always a problem that could enlarge the vision uh, between the, the West and the Islamic world. Uh, they will stand into the different camps, and also this will become the division uh, much much more uh, apparent. So I think in the future it will continue to uh, influence the world geo- geopolitics as well as the regional geopolitics. Dr. Wang, earlier Dr. Anderson mentioned the two-state solution. What do you make of the urgency of this solution, and what are the major challenges hindering its implementation? Yeah, yes, of course, the, two, the two-state solution has its difficulties. Of course, the two-state solution has uh, many obstacles to be realized. Right now, not only from the Israeli side, but also from the Palestinian side. So, uh, but again, this is, this is the very fundamental principle. This is the only principle that being shared and as well as being co-accepted uh, by Israelis and the Palestinians. No matter what happens, the two sides are, will still continue to uh, to support this. Uh, so, I think this is the only uh, uh, the widely accepted 
plan in the future, uh, as well as uh, right now uh, for the Palestinians, it's really to bring them together, to bridge the gap as well as to lead, lead uh, to a much more peaceful and prosperous future for, the, uh, for both of them. So I think no matter what happens, we should find a way out to continue and re-stress again and again and again uh, the two-state solution, no matter what happens. This is the only solution, the key to the future peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Anna. Thanks, Dr. Wang. Dr. Anderson, let's shift gear to the factors of the United States. Uh, following the incident, some reports say U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with foreign ministers of several Arab countries that have peace agreements with Israel and asked them to condemn Hamas actions. Uh, but it appears that the U.S. efforts were not successful. Reports suggest that including this recent conflict indirectly reflects the decline of U.S. influence in the region, in the Middle East. How do you interpret this analysis? I think that's true, that there is a great decline in the U.S. influence there. It will be talking, of course, to the Arab regimes with which it's closer or or those that collaborate more closely, many of whom have already engaged in this so-called normalization with the Israeli regime. Um, The Saudis, for their part, as mentioned before, have have actually um, moved farther away from the idea of normalization. They've been playing a type of game. Of course, they've been talking with the Israelis, but they know that in the Arab world, they will lose prestige massively if they move to normalization. And this, of course, this recent um, uh, conflict has raised the stakes there. They've, they've moved farther away from normalization in recent days, basically, because they say, as they as they must, if they want to represent the Arab world in any sort of way, that they... Um, there has to be a, a just solution for the Palestinians. Now, the problem is, going back to the two states there, is that the there's never been a sincere attempt at it, really. The current Israeli regime rejects it. The, the US, for its part, and the British and most of the NATO groups have been arming and funding the current Israeli regime to keep taking the land, to demolish houses in East Jerusalem, for example, to leaving very tiny amount of land in the hands of Palestinians, a not viable state. They've destroyed it in the way that was destroyed in South Africa. So with the made now, it may be that the Palestinian Authority is, still has some legacy with that idea, the, the, the idea of 1967 borders or two states, but really the major factions, the resistance factions who are now uh, raising uh attacks on the Israelis, not just in out of Gaza, but also in Nablus, in the West Bank, in Janine, in other parts, in other parts of Palestine, uh, realize that there's no possible future of two states. And the Netanyahu regime, of course, has rejected that because it said that the Palestinians don't exist and they want the whole, the whole of the historic Palestine as part of Israel. So I really think we have to re- rethink this idea. The whole idea of two states is, some, is an idea that is time has passed, basically. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead, many experts suggest the conflict has a far-reaching impact and will further expand to regional instability, profoundly influence the regional geopolitical landscape, also casting a shadow over the reconciliation process in the Middle East. Do you agree with this perspective? How do you foresee the region in the near future? Well, I think there's a reshaping going on. It's, it, it, there's a reshaping going on, and Palestine is at the heart of it, really. But that reshaping began with the decline of U.S. influence, with the rise of the influence of Iran in the region. Of course, remember, Iran is one of the key sponsors. It's not as though the Palestinian resistance groups are proxies of Iran, but Iran is providing them with help quite openly. All of the factions, not just the the the, the Islamic ones. So um, that role of Iran there is why, of course, the, the, the U.S. has been so hostile to Iran because it does play a role in supporting independent states, supporting independent Iraq and Syria, supporting the resistance groups in, in Lebanon that expelled the Israelis when they invaded Lebanon um, some years ago. So there is a reshaping of the region going on. It doesn't have to, we don't have to think of it as ending up in an unstable position, but there will be instability as that reshaping goes on. And I think the dismantling of Israel as an apartheid regime is something that should come front and center in the international discussions. Indeed. Thanks, Dr. Tim Anderson and Dr. Wang Jing. This is Bro Today. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to Road Today with me, Ge Anna in Beijing. Prime Minister of Thailand Setha Thavisingh has arrived in Hong Kong for his three-day trip in the city. After Hong Kong, the Prime Minister will also visit three ASEAN countries: Singapore, Brunei, and Malaysia. The Prime Minister said this visit is aimed at tightening relations with those regions and countries and strengthening cooperation in various areas. Thailand's Deputy Prime Minister Paprey Bah. Hida Nukara is also in Hong Kong to address Hong Kong ASEAN Summit 2023. So, for more on the news, joining us on the line is Professor Song Ching Ren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thanks for joining us, Professor.、Mm, hello. Professor, the Prime Minister has started with Hong Kong as part of his five-day tour of neighboring regions. What do you make of the choice of Hong Kong as a starter? Could you please elaborate on the pivotal role that Hong Kong plays in shaping China-Thailand relations? Okay, we know that uh, uh, Hong Kong is an international financial center, and Hong Kong is also a hub for economic, trade, and finance in Asia region. Hong Kong has、uh, opened an economic and trade office in Bangkok.、Uh, for a long time, Hong Kong and Thailand have had extensive economic, economic and trade cooperation in the past、uh, many years, with multiple economic and trade cooperation agreements signed past、uh, years. The two sides have closely cooperated in investment cooperation, trade exchanges,、uh, personal exchanges, airport construction, finance. Digital economy,、uh, cross-border、uh, payments, green development, and film and television industry development, and so on. Hong Kong is a is a gold platform for the Thai government and enterprises to raise funds. The Thai business community uses Hong Kong as a springboard to expand international business, raise funds, and assist in Thailand's construction and development.、Uh, Hong Kong is an important trading partner of Thailand and. Thailand exports、uh, exports a large amount of products to Hong Kong every year. Moreover, Hong Kong is a is a part of China. The economic trade cooperation between、uh, Hong Kong and Thailand is getting closer and closer, which has also become an important driving force to promote the cooperation、uh, between China, Thailand, and the BRI framework. The Thai Prime Minister、uh, Minister visited to Hong Kong this time. Uh, he will visit、uh, Hong Kong this time. He will meet the, with the Hong Kong high-level officials, and the two sides will discuss how to enhance cooperation in various fields such as economy and trade.、Uh, the relationship between the two sides will be promoted to a new level, which will continue to promote the, the development of cooperation between、uh, China and Thailand as a whole. Professor, speaking of Hong Kong's special position, Thai Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs has participated in the Hong Kong ASEAN Summit 2023. What role does Hong Kong play in facilitating collaboration between ASEAN nations?、Mm. Uh, Hong Kong and the ASEAN countries have close economic and trade relations for a long time, and Hong Kong has established three economic and trade offices. In ASEAN countries, to promote the development of economic and trade cooperation between Hong Kong and ASEAN countries, uh, uh, as an international financial center, Hong Kong is also a hub、uh, for economic, trade, and finance in Asia region. For a long time,、uh, the economic and trade cooperation between Hong Kong and ASEAN countries have, has been、uh, very close.、Uh, we know that the current global economic situation is not good. There is A more urgent need for Asia Pacific region to work together to build a stable and smooth industrial supply chain and strengthen economic and trade cooperation within this region. In this overall situation, Hong Kong is bound to better play its role as a good platform to gather for gathering funds and talents, and a high-value service provider in sharing a prosperous and developing future with ASEAN countries.、Uh, currently. Uh, uh, several ASEAN countries are accelerating economic recovery and development, actively promoting investment attraction, requiring more finance, financing from the international market, and more pro- professional、uh, financial services.、Uh, Hong Kong can become an ideal platform 
for Asian governments and many enterprises to raise funds, providing more financial support for uh, Asian countries' port construction, uh, railway roads, and bridge construction uh, in Asian countries. Hong Kong can also provide more professional financial services for Asian enterprises to engage in international cooperation. Uh, in short, Hong Kong can continue to provide strong support for the sustainable development of Southeast Asia countries' economy, especially for the development of green economy and digital economy uh, in the future, both currently and in the future. Professor, let's delve further into China-Thailand ties. In his inaugural speech weeks ago, the Thai new prime minister emphasized uh, the primary focus of Thailand's new cabinet is the country's economic recovery. Could you elaborate on the specific strategies and initiatives uh, the Thai government plans to implement to boost the economy? And how does the new government perceive its relations with China in the context of this economic recovery efforts? Uh, now, the Thai, Thai economy is facing uh, many domestic and international challenges. Uh, therefore, the new prime minister and the new cabinet of Thailand attach a greater importance to the recovery and development of the economy and are also, and are also taking more, some measures. The new government will first achieve the short-term goal of providing farmers or conditional debt uh, deferral to solve debt problems, supporting small and medium-sized enterprises affected by the pandemic and distributing uh, 10,000 Thai baht to digital wallets of all Thai people aged 16 and above to stimulate consumption. Another aspect to promote the development of the talent tourism industry, the Thai government is taking more measures to facilitate the entry of foreign tourists and plans to extend the uh, operating hours of entertainment venues and provide fast visa processing channels to foreigners uh, who participate in international activities in Thailand to mm. boost the development of Thailand tourism industry and the overall economy. And uh, the new Thailand government's medium to long-term policies to boost the economic, economic development include, uh, include accelerating negotiations on FTAs with uh, several countries, improving the convenience of Thai people going abroad, developing green technology and high technology, increasing investment attraction, and so on. Uh, recently, Thailand Prime Minister and other officials have conducted intensive visits to ASEAN countries and uh, other countries and regions to expand economic trade cooperation uh, with, the, with the aim of quickly boosting Thailand's economy. Uh, China is Thailand's Thailand's largest trading partner, an uh, important source of FDI, and uh, an important source of tourists. Therefore, Thailand attaches importance, uh, greater importance to expanding cooperation with China in the process of boosting its economy. Uh, now we can see that Thailand is boosting uh, cooperation in various fields between China and Thailand. Then besides what had been mentioned, what potential aspects do you see for the two countries to further collaborate? Uh, we know that China-Thailand relations are very friendly and uh, are building a community with a shared future. The prospect, uh, prospects for the development of bilateral relations are very promising, and there are, will be many areas of, for future cooperation between the two, two countries. First, the cooperation between China and Thailand in railway port and other areas will continue to advance. In addition, the China-Thailand railway will be linked to China-Laos railway in the future, which will uh, greatly boost regional connectivity and economic development. Uh, secondly, cooperation between China and Thailand in the digital economy will continue to advance, and cross-border e-commerce cooperation between the two countries will also continue to advance. This cooperation will continue to promote the transformation and upgrading of China-Thailand economic and trade cooperation. Uh, mm -hmm. Thirdly, uh, China and Thailand will continue to increase cooperation in the development of low-carbon and green economies in the future. And the cooperation between China and Thailand in, in these fields, uh, and also other fields such as uh, electric vehicles will continue to advance. 
which will contribute to the sustainable development of the country's economy. Uh, fourthly, uh, future cooperation between China and Thailand in high-tech fields such as the fifth-generation networks, artificial uh, intelligence, will also continue to, be, to advance. Uh, fifthly, exchanges and uh, cooperation between China and Thailand in tourism cooperation, education, and other areas will continue to advance, promoting the exchanges of the two countries' people. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, there are also other more areas for future cooperation between China and Thailand. Thanks, Professor, for shedding light on the China-Thailand relations. That's Professor Song Ren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. China's Ministry of Industry and Information Technology has issued a document aimed at improving business environment in the telecommunications sector and at encouraging the participation of more private enterprises. The ministry said it will adjust access standards for the satellite internet business and grant more policy support for the private enterprises in these sectors. The revenue in China's telecommunications sector hit 1.14 trillion Yuan, up 6.2% year-on-year in the first eight months of the year. The number of 5G mobile phone users reached nearly 715 million, rising by 45% year-on-year. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Liu Baocheng, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. So, Professor Liu, first uh, tell us more about China's telecommunication industry. Why is this move to encourage the private enterprises to participate now? And what can private enterprises do in this sector? Chinese telecommunication industry has really uh, boomed over the past uh, more than one decade, where uh, both industries and uh, consumers benefit a great deal in terms of cost reduction and also in terms of the uh, smoothness and convenience that people can really have access to. And now uh, we are facing a new era of digitization with big data, with cloud computing. And uh, now uh, what we need is uh, really to expand the coverage and also in-depth uh, penetration into uh, the marketplace, not only within the domestic market, but also uh, facing the uh, global market. And that's why we need further information on two fronts. Uh, One is the uh, uh, continued uh, innovation for uh, technology advancement, particularly in the 5G spread and also in the uh, megagates spread. And uh, in the meantime, we also need more of the institutional reform for uh, innovation uh, so uh, this round of uh, new policy is really uh, on the institutional side to encourage more of the private sectors to participate in the telecom industry uh, with uh, uh, better market access uh, ho- in hope that we can create a level playing field between private uh, enterprises uh, versus the state-owned enterprises so that they can really be able to team up to further stretch the supply chain to bring a better benefit uh, for the uh, high quality growth uh, with the focus on digitization of the Chinese society and economy. Mm-hmm. And what measures do you think need to be taken to encourage the private enterprises into this sector? Well, uh, in recent years, we noticed the central government has been uh, very active producing also uh, documents catered to show up uh, the uh, Chinese economy and uh, bring more benefit to the society. Uh, what is really needed, one is the local government needs to be the encouraged to uh, further implement uh, into real practice of those policies so that uh, uh, businesses and consumers do feel uh, the immediate benefit out of it. Uh, second, more of the confidence needs to be injected into the investors where they can really uh, see a transparent, predictable, and accountable uh, the policy that is uh, still lying ahead. And uh, third uh, is that uh, across the board coordination between different ministries, uh, between different in- industries, and uh, needs to be uh, also the enhanced. 
And mm -hmm. lastly, consumers also need to be uh, educated so that uh, they can actively participate, in, uh, not only uh, in the cost reduction, but also to support the entire market, for example, by installing uh, on a widespread the 5G network and also to voice their uh, right concerns so that uh, the uh, feedback loop can be established on a positive basis between industries and conception because after all, it is really the market that drives innovation both in technology and also in governance. Mm. And you mentioned 5G. In the first eight months of this year, the number of 5G mobile phone users here in China reached nearly uh, 750 million, uh, rising by 45% year on year. So why is 5G so important for us today? And what role does 5G play in the transformation of China's economic growth pattern? Uh, on the consumer side, uh, they can enjoy better movies and uh, more uh, of the traffic jam can be alleviated. And on the industry level, the Internet of Things is something that is uh, uh, on the high agenda for high quality growth. And particularly now when businesses are in a rapid, but of course painful transformation, uh, uh, for green development and uh, for high quality growth and digitization is the way to go. Mm. And they may need uh, uh, the a larger part of upfront investment, but that does really pay off. So uh, therefore, you know, the rational calculation uh, uh, drives uh, such a sort of decision to have more adoption of uh, 5G because it's really the trendsetter and nobody really wanted to uh, be left behind. Mm, and 5G technology and industrial internet, how does the integration of them uh, make China's industrial production efficient and sustainable? Well, smart manufacturing is the game of the day. And uh, uh, right now, uh, the uh, transformation does require the uh, more of uh, uh, information management uh, both on the uh, internal supply chain and also on the external supply chain connecting with the rest of the world because now supply chain is overstretched and you need really to coordinate uh, hundreds of thousands of partners to really to have a final product to be made. So therefore, uh, the information flow and also the efficiency and low cost is really there to sharpen the competitive edge of all industries. And uh, further, that uh, when China is uh, trying to integrate all domestic market by streamlining some of the trade barriers uh, on the uh, institutional front, and technology also needs to be more adaptive to uh, a uh, synergization of uh, all industries with consumers and also the two-way traffic must be established instead of uh, the old-fashioned way of uh, one-way advertising. So uh, this way, uh, we are able to really to uh, move on a new horizon uh, mm -hmm. for uh, high-quality gro uh, uh, growth and also better coordination and better collaboration uh, mm -hmm. with the rest of the world, uh, global partners, uh, both on a conception level and also on industrial level. Mm. And when we talk about telecommunication and 5G, we have to mention the company Huawei. So, Professor Liu, what's Huawei's role in the 5G industry, not only in China, but also on the global arena? And how do you describe Huawei's uh, innovation capability? Huawei is definitely in, uh, the innovative leader, and uh, they really earned the respect uh, uh, not only from consumers, but also from their peer com uh, competition. And so, for example, you know, the Ericsson and uh, uh, many other suppliers, they uh, really showed the respect they, uh, for their uh, leadership. And then the, uh, because one is they have uh, uh, the uh, foresight in investing uh, human capacity development uh, that is really uh, uh, moving to the uh, cutting edge of this industry. And uh, second, they really have a global view where uh, the, their revenue is uh, uh, largely derived from the uh, global sources. And uh, also, they have a, uh, a very strong corporate culture where people uh, can really team up and they are ready to learn 
from all the advanced ones, like uh, uh, Mr. Ren, he, he always says that I admire Apple, and uh, uh, therefore they uh, give themselves a room for further learning and further improvements. That was Professor Liu Baocheng, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. Hello, everyone. This is Zun Ahmed Khan, currently based in Tsinghua University. World Today is an excellent initiative to discuss current affairs by including experts from across the globe. I've always enjoyed our thought-provoking discussions and wish the team even more success and impact in the future. American media outlets report Wall Street is not confident that it can handle all of Washington's bonds. Experts fear the country is hurtling towards another budget crisis, which could drive up borrowing costs as weakening political resolve to tackle spending. Reports say this could also lead to a deficit blownout that will push U.S. Treasury yields beyond their recent surge to 16-year highs. The U.S. 10-year Treasury yields, which serve as a benchmark for global borrowing briefly rose to about 4.9 percent, its highest level since 2007. The U.S. national debt has soared to over 33 trillion U.S. dollars, but with the waning demand globally, the situation raises concerns of an economic slowdown in the United States, highlighting the vulnerability of the global financial system. To delve into this, let's have Professor Chu Qiang, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chu. Thank you. Professor, given the recent challenges in the American Treasury bond market, how do you think the traditional belief in the perpetual demand for U.S. debt is being tested? Well, uh, it's been tested for many, many times. I'm not, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, very uh, uh, surprised by this situation. Uh, American's economy goes uh, ups and downs for uh, quite some times, uh, actually since the 2008. Um, you see, uh, this is an economy actually based on a lot of lots of borrowing to keep on running, especially for the American government. Well, the reason why people believe the American Treasury bond and want to buy it as a, one of the most important uh, part in their portfolio of the investment is because Generally speaking, Americans' economy in the past four or six decades are one of the most powerful in the whole world. And, uh, it's easy to lend to them because if I lend some money, let's say 100 U.S. dollar to Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, I can be, you know, rest assured. But right now, more and more signs are showing that Americans' economy are losing its vitality and losing its creativity. So it makes the whole market suspicious than before. Professor, but the rise in U.S. Treasury yields has led to many concerns about the pressure on bond prices for years to come. In your opinion, what could be the long-term effects of this pressure on the American bond market and its overall economy? Okay, I don't want to make this answer to be very complicated and very professional-oriented. Let's just put it in a simple way uh, to our you know, ordinary uh, or non-professional uh, audience. Uh, let's say if you have a very good credit, people, when you borrow money from people, the price is very cheap. Let's say Bill Gates want to borrow $100 from me. I probably would just give it to him asking for no credit because I know he will definitely pay me off uh, after uh, it's mid term, right? Mm -hmm. And also, um, so this is for the country with good credit that their interest rate they can enjoy is very, very low. And also the second important fact is that the treasury bond is the most important bond is actually like a standard for all the bonds of this country. Let's say if Chinese government bonds rate is like 3%, so many other companies rate or other household borrowing rate will be based on that is the 3% plus a certain points. U.S. bond, Germany bond, the same thing like that. So when, if, I mean, if the gov uh, government of the US, United States are losing its credit because it's running bad and running bad, and they keep on delaying paying off the debt, people won't believe them, and then less and less people are willing to lend money to them. So they have to raise up their interest they're willing to pay to lure more people to borrow money from, uh, to, to lend money to them. Mm -hmm. So their interest rate is going to be more than 3%. It's going to be 4 5 or 7 or 8 and this benchmark will affect anyone else in 
this country, let's say a U.S. company, a U.S. university, or even a U.S. family want to borrow more mortgage, the old interest rate is going to be very high. And when it's get high enough, it's going to kill all kinds of the businesses because people are not, unable to pay it off by ordinary or normal business operation. Professor, thanks for the interesting and clear explanation. But central banks and other large buyers have historically financed deficit spending, but many have pulled back from the treasury market. For instance, the Bank of Japan has shifted their focus to their own government bonds due to higher yields. So how do you think this shift in investment patterns will influence the global bond market and what implications might it have for other nations worldwide? This is also another very professional uh, question. So one thing, Japanese financial market is very, very different from the others. One is Japanese market is a long-term deflation-oriented market, so which means their inflation rate is very, very low. And secondly, the aging economy. And secondly is because Japanese yen serves as like international channel or funding uh, currency of the whole world financial system, which means when you borrow Japanese yen, you are not using Japanese yen for yourself, but you're using Japanese yen as a bridge to invest or convert into other currency for other financial markets. So it's like a like a portal into other financial markets with a very low cost. And thirdly, the reason why Japanese yen can be so you know liberalized and to be so strong, meanwhile, is because they have currency swap deals with the U.S. dollar, which means once Japanese yen has faced any collapse. U.S. government will use, or the Federal Reserve will use U.S. dollar to save them or to cover up all the losses or the big crisis generated by that for some while. So, which this three deals makes uh, Japanese in a very, very different situation, similar to U.S. dollar as well, because U.S. dollar itself is the most important currency of the whole world. They have the highest credit, so they can. Basically, well, theoretically, they can borrow for unlimited level, but this theory does not apply to any other nations. For example, if China wanted to do this, if uh, Malaysia, if Australia, or if any other country would like to do that, it's going to be very impossible. So I would like to say, U.S. government and Federal Reserve is, to some extent, not very responsible for their spending. Okay, thanks, Professor Chu. That's Professor Chu Chang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Bye for now.